Please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 86. That's our text this morning as we are working our way through the book of Job, but then also working our way through the book of Psalms. And this morning we come to Psalm 86. A plea for God's mercy. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. One winter's night in 1935, it is told Fiorello LaGuardia, the irrepressible mayor of New York, showed up at a night court in the poorest ward of the city. He dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench. That night, a tattered old woman charged with stealing a loaf of bread was brought before him. She defended herself by saying, my daughter's husband has deserted her. She is sick and her children are starving. The shopkeeper refused to drop the charges saying, it's a bad neighborhood, your honor, and she's got to be punished to teach other people a lesson. LaGuardia sighed. He turned to the old woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. $10 or 10 days in jail. However, even while pronouncing the sentence, LaGuardia reached into his pocket, took out a $10 bill, and threw it into his hat with these famous words, Here's the $10 fine, which I now remit, and furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in the courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. The following day, A New York newspaper reported $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old grandmother who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. Making forced donations were a red-faced storekeeper, 70 petty criminals, and a few New York policemen, end quote. That's an illustration of mercy. Mercy is a particular special manifestation of love. Mercy is an act of love by which someone 
is relieved of his misery. Sometimes mercy and compassion are used interchangeably, but actually mercy flows from compassion. Compassion is when you feel for someone in their misery, and yet feelings are not worth talking about if those feelings don't convert into action. Mercy is the loving action of actually helping someone. The Bible is clear, God is mercy. Many times in scripture, God is referred to as a God of mercy. In the psalm before us this morning, what is particularly desired by the psalmist David here is God's mercy. Now he also talks about grace. He also talks about God's steadfast love, which in the ESV, when you see steadfast love, that's again that covenantal word hesed. It's the covenant love of God for his people. Um, Sometimes that word in other English versions is translated as mercy because it's a practical love. It's a love that saves. It's a a love that, that comes to God's people and makes a difference in our lives. We also recognize, as the psalmist also here does, that God is a God of grace. And uh, both mercy and grace have to do with God's love. Grace is what we call God's love when it's not deserved. God's mercy is his love relieving us of misery. And we have to recognize that there would be no misery apart from sin, our sin. Misery is due to our fall into sin. Some of, the, some of our misery is brought upon ourselves as a consequence of our own sinful actions. Some of the misery comes as a result of wrongdoing and the sin of others. Some of it is just part of this sin-cursed world. But all of it is brought upon ourselves and is what we deserve. What this means is that any time that God is merciful to us, he is also gracious In other words, we never deserve to have him come and bring relief to some problem that we are facing in our lives. What we deserve because of our sin is nothing but judgment and misery. But God is gracious, and he does act to deliver us from the miseries of sin. In this Psalm, Psalm 86, David is pleading for God to be merciful to him. David needs help because he is in some kind of danger from enemies. And we find hints of what is happening Throughout this psalm, in verse 2, we learn that his very life is in danger. He says, preserve my life. He says, save your servant. In verse 4, he asks God to bring joy or to gladden his soul, which implies that he's in a state of sadness. He's depressed by what is happening to him, by what these enemies are doing to him. In verse 7, he refers to the day of my trouble. The greatest clue about what is happening to him is in verse 14, where he says, Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. In verse 16, David asks for for strength so that he will be able to stand against people whom he describes in verse 17 as those who hate him. We've all had people who have hated us, but I doubt any of us have actually been afraid that one of these, these hateful people are going to take our lives. Still, we have our own share of problems and miseries, and in all of them we can, like David, and should, like David, go to God and plead for his mercy. And so this psalm comes as instruction to us and, and, and comfort. It's a psalm of instruction and comfort in how to handle our miseries. If you think about it, it's really quite remarkable that any human being would be allowed to go before God and to plead for mercy, as we see David here doing in this psalm. 
What gives a sinful man like David or like you and me the right to think that God is going to give us anything but what we deserve? How is it that we can sin against God and then expect him to help us? Nevertheless, God inspired David to write this psalm. It's recorded in scripture as God's message to us that he is a God of mercy and that we can and should pray this very same prayer. God in this wants us to know that he's willing to help us. And David knew this about God as he prayed. And you must know that David here is not being presumptuous and pleading for mercy. We might wonder that. Is, is he being presumptuous? But there is evidence in this psalm by the wording that David uses that he is actually thinking back to the revelation that God gave of himself back in Exodus chapters 32 through 34. And if we spend a little bit of time for a moment in Exodus, we find that indeed the people of God are deserving of great judgment. In Exodus chapter 32, we have the incident of the golden calf. The incident opens with Moses on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments as well as other very important revelations of God's law. And Moses ends up being on the mountain for 40 days. And the perspective of the people is that he is so delayed in returning that he has surely died or maybe he's just left. And in their impatience, they demand that a golden calf be made for their worship. And what becomes evident by this gross idolatry is that the entire nation really deserves to be destroyed. And God meant every word of what is recorded in Exodus 32 verses 9 through 10 it says, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And I will make of you a great nation. But Moses' response, well, he pleads earnestly for the people, and he prays that for God's name's sake and for the sake of the covenant promise that God will not destroy them. And as real as God's wrath was, God's gracious love prevails and God does not utterly destroy his people. Yet those who were blatantly involved were executed. And later, as Moses evaluates the great sinfulness of the people in this incident of the golden calf, he's unsure of the status of the remaining people with God. As the mediator of God's people, Moses is restless because God has said that if he goes up with them, he's going to consume them in his wrath. And Moses understood the reality that unless God forgives the sin of his people, there is no hope for them. Without forgiveness, there is no possibility of anything but punishment and judgment. And God has already told Moses that he, that is Moses, is unable to be the one to make atonement for the sins of the people. And yet God has told Moses to lead the people into the promised land and has said that an angel will accompany him. Now Moses doesn't understand that this angel is the angel of the Lord, that he is Jehovah himself, that he is the pre-incarnate Christ. He thinks that this angel to which the Lord refers is just a regular angel, and he wonders how it is that he can lead God's people without God's presence. And uh, God responds by telling Moses that he will go with him personally. But then Moses is still thinking about the people of God, and he wants to know their status with God, and he therefore pleads for God to go with the people as well. And God answers yes. And yet, understandably, Moses is still unsure of what exactly is going to happen to God's people because God has just said that if he goes up with them, they will be consumed. And in order to clear up the, his concern, Moses asks God to give a revelation of the glory of his presence. 
And God has said that his presence will go with both Moses and the people. And so Moses, for his own comfort and assurance, wants to know once and for all the nature of that glorious presence that will go with them. Will it be a glorious revelation of wrath or will it be a glorious revelation of mercy and grace? And to this request, God says to Moses, this is Exodus 33, 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, we are told that God, re, uh, what exactly God revealed when he proclaimed his name in a special way to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Understandably, this is one of the greatest revelations of God that we have in the entire Bible. It was a great source of comfort to Moses as well as to the Old Testament people of God. They needed these words. These were the words of life that they longed for and needed because of their breaking of the covenant where they wondered if a covenant relationship with God moving forward was even possible. And when God, what God revealed to his people is that a relationship with him is not impossible because of our sin. God has sovereignly decided to be gracious and compassionate. Now notice, to a remnant, God never promised to forgive the sins of everybody, but he promised to reveal himself in mercy to many sinners and to do so unfailingly. And what we also learn from God's revelation to Moses is that God's forgiveness of sins is not just a clearing of the guilty as though God just lets some sin go unpunished. No, God is a righteous and just God who will by no means clear the guilty. And this is where Christ and his atoning work comes in. For what God does through Christ is to justify the ungodly so that we are no longer guilty. Christ paid the actual penalty of our sins so that when God clears us, when he forgives us, it is because we are no longer guilty of sin. Having the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account, God can, in full justice and righteousness, forgive our sin. This revelation of God's love and mercy is one of the most frequently quoted passages in the Old Testament. And I brought it up because it's referred to by David here in Psalm 86, verse 5. Notice, for you, Lord, our good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This revelation of God given to Moses was the basis for David's hope in God's mercy for him. What greater assurance do we need of how God will treat us than what he tells us himself in his word? To call upon God to be loving and merciful as David did is simply to ask God to act in accord with who he says he is. And again, I'd bring up that that word hesed, which is translated as steadfast love. Again, this, this covenantal love, which is spoken of in many places here in this, this psalm as well. Verse 5, 
Notice, abounding in steadfast love, verse 13. For great is your steadfast love, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in what? In steadfast love, also faithfulness. But Hesed is this steadfast love, the special merciful love of God, which we find here in this psalm. And so as sinful as David was in, in pleading for God to be merciful, to be his loving covenant God, David's not being presumptuous. He's taking God at his word. At the same time, we cannot just expect God to be merciful to everyone and in every situation. The psalmist understands that there are certain requirements if, if he and uh, us are to experience God's mercy. And I see five things here revealed in this psalm that are necessary for us to receive God's mercy. And it's not that these things earn God's mercy. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. Nothing we do can earn favor with God. In fact, these requirements for mercy are worked in us as God's people by his grace. It's God who prepares us to receive his mercy. And yet it's good to evaluate our lives and to see if these five things are present. And if these things are not present in your life, then you need to seek these things from God. And you must understand that you are not to expect God's mercy until you have these things. So if you desire these things, if you need these things, seek them from the Lord as the way to receive mercy. And the first of these things that we need is humility. I see this in verse 1. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Humility is when we recognize our proper status before God. Humility is seen in the attitude that I'm not able to handle my problems on my own. I am poor and I am needy. I do not have my own resources to be able to handle the situations in my life. I'm not mighty. I'm not self-sufficient. I'm a mere creature dependent upon God for my very next breath. And it's when we are in that frame of mind that we can go to God and expect him to help us. Listen to the instruction of 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. It says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. It's only in the way of humility that we can expect to experience God's grace. It's only in the humble, it's only the humble who, who, who cast all their cares on God. Um, and uh, why would we ever cast our cares upon God if we thought that we could handle them on our own? We have cares and uh, we ought to cast them on God. Because God will care for us and he will help us. Like the hymn says, Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And then we have the second requirement. The first requirement is humility. The second requirement to experience God's mercy is devotion to him, which is seen here in verse 2. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Really, the word that's translated here in the ESV as godly is the word for holy. Um, David is not saying that he is perfect. He, he's not saying he's without sin, but by saying he's holy, he means 
that he recognizes himself as set apart to God, as consecrated, devoted to God, to God's service, to God's glory. David explains further what he means by his holiness when he calls God his God and refers to God as, uh, or to himself as God's servant. He's talking about how he knows he's, he's in a covenant relationship with God that involves mutual love for one another. We love God. Yes, he loves us, but in a covenant relationship, you love God. You love him back. There's a, 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 a devotion to God for what he has done for you. For the unbeliever who is not in a covenant relationship with God and who does not love and serve God, God is not under obligation to grant mercy. But for us who belong to God through Christ, he's committed himself to us to care for us. And of course, God is not mocked. He knows his own. And only those who are truly devoted to him can expect to experience his covenant blessings, including mercy. And then the third requirement for this grace of mercy is persistence in prayer. Notice verse 3, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I, do I cry all day long. You might say that there are really two requirements for mercy here in verse 3. The first is prayer itself. We are not to expect God's help if we're not praying for it. Jesus has told us you have not because you ask not. And then the second thing is that we are to persist in prayer. Jesus has taught us through the parable of the persistent widow in Matthew 18, as well as in other places. But there in Matthew 18, he says that the lesson of that parable is that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. The Lord has revealed to us through this parable that he's pleased to answer our prayers in the way of persistence. And so this ought to mark our requests for mercy. Don't give up because to give up in prayer is really to give up on the Lord. Continue in your prayers. Cry to the Lord all day long. He will hear and he will answer. And then fourth, to experience God's mercy, you must have faith in him. Verse four, gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. We are to lift up our souls to the Lord, knowing that he alone can help us. When we are in need of deliverance from some mercy, uh, uh, from some misery, needing mercy, our faith must be in God and not in our own strength or in someone or something of this world. James reminds us that the double-minded man must not suppose that, we are to, that, that he will receive anything from the Lord. We must go to the Lord alone, trusting that he alone can help us. And then five, the way of mercy is the way of repentance. Verse five, for you, Lord, our good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Really the greatest mercy of all. Do you realize the greatest mercy really that we need is the mercy of forgiveness? There's, this is the greatest mercy because without forgiveness, we face the greatest danger of all, which is the misery of eternal death in hell, which is a never-ending experience of the, of the wrath of God, complete absence of anything good. The mercy of forgiveness is the mercy that we need more than anything else. In fact, without the mercy of forgiveness, we are not in a relationship with God where we can expect any good thing from him. It's sin that separates us from God, and until 
that sin problem is taken care of. We are not under God's covenant love, but under his wrath. And as verse 5 says, the only way to have forgiveness is to call upon God and ask for it. We're talking now about responding to the gospel. The gospel calls us to repent of our sins and to by faith lay hold of the righteousness that is in Christ Jesus. And the glorious truth of the gospel is that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our God is a merciful God, but to experience that mercy, we have to first know we need his mercy. We have to know our sin. We have to know something of what our sins deserve. We must go to him humbly asking that he not give us what we deserve. And of course, God is a God of justice and wrath. Sin must be punished, which is why we must go only on to God only on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the one who died to save sinners. Our hope for forgiveness is the mercy of God revealed in the cross. There Jesus suffered what was necessary to deliver us from the eternal consequences of our sin. And knowing that Christ came to help sinners, it's not presumptuous of us to to appeal to God's mercy. But through Christ, God has revealed himself as a God of mercy who forgives sinners. That's a message that you and I must personally know, a message that we are also to proclaim. We must know and proclaim that if anyone comes to God through faith in Jesus Christ, he'll be treated with mercy. The cross is both the possibility and the revelation of God's mercy towards sinners. God has never turned a deaf ear to a sinner who seeks the mercy of forgiveness. No one has been or ever will be rejected who comes to Christ seeking from him the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Jesus said in John 6, 37, it's a verse that's coming up in our series in John, one of the greatest verses in all of scripture. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. If you go to Jesus, which is talking about going to him in faith, seeking the forgiveness of your sins, he will by no means cast you out. And once you have come to Christ and have received his forgiveness, then you must know that you are in a relationship with God where he's going to be merciful to you again and again and again. Indeed, your whole life will be a revelation of his mercy as he works all things together for your good. And this ongoing, never-failing mercy of God doesn't mean that you're always going to be delivered from every trouble right away. David, notice, writes at the end of verse 7, he says, Therefore you answer me. Um, we can, like David, be sure as, as God's children that he's going to answer our humble prayers that are brought in the name of Christ. We can be sure that God will answer our prayers, but sometimes God doesn't answer us when we would like. Um, God's timetable of deliverance might be different than ours, which is why, the psalm, like the psalmist, we plead for mercy. But we know that God withholds deliverance only when it serves his uh, his glory and our greater good. God is a merciful God. He's not going to allow us to suffer one moment uh, longer than is necessary for our good and his glory. And yet we still have those times of seeming delay as we wait. And when we, when we have those times, we, we must reflect on who God is and 
what we know to be his good ways with his people. This is what the psalmist is doing in verses 8 through 13. You know, as he says, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Notice what the psalmist asks for there in verse 11 as he waits for God's mercy, helping him with his enemies. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. What we need more than deliverance from our earthly problems is the mercy of God teaching us his ways, allowing us to know him better. When he says um, uh, there in uh, verse 11, unite my heart, he's saying, Lord, I need the mercy of an undivided heart so that I love you and serve you faithfully. The greatest mercies of all are the spiritual ones. And when we reflect on what God has already done for us in Christ, we realize that we have so many reasons to praise God. That alone is a great mercy. That alone is what allows us, sustains us, allows us to have hope in the midst of our trials. And so may verses 12 through 13 be our confession. May the words of the psalmist be our words where the psalmist says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Can you say that while you or a loved one is dying in the hospital? Is it really possible to say these words and mean it as life's problems harshly confront us? Yes. And the reason is given there in verse 13 for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Think of it. God has already delivered us from the greatest misery of all. He's already delivered us from eternal death through the death of his own son. His mercy, his love right now is great towards you, child of God. Do you know that? Do you believe it? Are you taking refuge in it? Seek God's mercy Trust God's mercy already revealed in Jesus Christ and rejoice in the comfort that God will help all who humbly seek him. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this steadfast love, this covenantal love. That's a very merciful love. Father, we this morning come to you as a needy people. We have so many earthly needs, but especially, Father, we need forgiveness of our sins. We need that which will enable us to have a right relationship with you. That is the greatest need for the greatest miseries of all are those because of our sin. So, Father, we thank you that in Christ we have forgiveness. In Christ we have the hope of eternal life where we will be delivered from all of the miseries of sin. And so, Father, we pray that each one of us here may know what it is to seek your mercy in Christ. Lord, we thank you that this is a mercy that is given to all who seek it. Lord, give us uh, the humility to be able to truly come to you 
with a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and no trust at all in ourselves, but looking to you for the deliverance that we need, trusting that that deliverer is the son that you have given, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.